this morning we have two readings from Matthew. First, chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, the second reading is Matthew 19, 3 to 9. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Thanks, Holly, for reading, and uh, morning, everybody. Uh, it'd be good to keep that passage in Matthew 5 open. I'm going to be looking at that. Before we do, just a couple um, extra reminders, notices. Um, nice baby. Um, this week... Uh, Bush Church Aid events happening Monday through Thursday. It's the same event being repeated at different locations around the city. Let me encourage you to, to look online to see where that's happening and go along, if you can, to hear about what BCA are doing, bringing the gospel to rural areas of Australia. And then uh, another thing, just a heads up. <clears throat> this afternoon, I'm heading to um, Coromandel Valley Uniting Church. Uh, to do an info session for them for the Mark drama, which is something, if you've been around for a few years, you'll know about. It's a dramatic presentation of Mark's gospel. Uh, it's brilliant. It's been one of the best things I've been involved in over the last eight years. And um, so that church is planning to do a production in May. I'll give you details as the time draws near. But if you haven't seen it, or if you've, even if you have, it'd be a great thing to, to get along to. Uh, but I'll let you know nearer the time. All right, this morning we are considering Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount on adultery and lust and divorce. Nice light topics for a Sunday morning. And for many of us, I think these subjects, they do hit a raw nerve. We carry wounds from the past. We carry feelings of guilt and shame. 
And so I think it's really important this morning we remember the context for this teaching. We need to remember this whole section is Jesus' attack on self-righteousness. Jesus is deliberately drawing out, showing the true meaning of the Old Testament law to get us to realize we are not righteous in ourselves. We are not good enough for God. The repeated phrase that comes through this section, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. In other words, Jesus is saying, you've heard how the law, how they're distorting its teaching, softening its demands. And they're doing that in order to lower the bar to a level they can climb over. They're seeking to be justified by the law. They want a righteousness of their own based on their own obedience and goodness. And part of what Jesus is doing in this section is explaining what the law really means. I tell you, I'm telling you the real meaning of the law, how demanding it really is. He's raising the bar back up so that we realize we cannot climb over it, that all of us fall far short of God's perfect standards. See, the law is a bit like a mirror. In this section, Jesus is lifting up the mirror of God's law so that we see ourselves as we truly are. And he's doing that so that we come to him. Remember how the sermon began, blessed are the poor in spirits. He's lifting up the law so we see our poverty of spirit, so that we come to him broken and bankrupt, mourning our sin, meek and humble, hungering, thirsting for the righteousness that we lack in ourselves. He wants us to transfer our trust from ourselves to him, the only one who has truly kept the law. He wants us to realize that righteousness isn't something we can achieve, it's something we need to receive. By faith we receive Christ's righteousness as our own. I think there's a particular temptation in this area of sexual sin to pretend that we're okay, that we've got it under control, that our hearts are pure. I'm not saying we should all get up and confess the details of our sexual failures, but we do need to acknowledge that we are sexual sinners. We've all failed in this area. I, for one, certainly have. As Jesus explains the true meaning of the law, it's meant to humble us. It's meant to expose our flaws. It's meant to drive us again to the cross, saying, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. So three points to guide us through. The first is the longest. Firstly, the damage of adultery and divorce. Jesus says, verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This is the seventh of the Ten Commandments. Remember back in verse 17, Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So what is the, the full, true meaning of this command? Well, to understand that, we need to look at God's design for sex and marriage. And that means turning back to Genesis chapter 2. And verse 24. I was going to have it on the screen, but I haven't. So if you want to turn that up, that would be good. Genesis 2, 24. Uh, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is God's blueprint Sorry, for marriage. Right at the beginning of creation, God tells us what marriage is to be. 
That is why a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Uh, you would have noticed in that reading from Matthew 19, when Jesus is asked a question about divorce, he responds by quoting this verse. Similarly, in Ephesians 5, the longest section of teaching on marriage in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul bases his teaching, again, on this verse from Genesis 2. This is God's blueprint for marriage. It tells us that marriage is a public, lifelong commitment, a sexual union between one man and one woman. It's public. A man will leave his father and mother, his family of origin. There's no ambiguity a new family is being formed. It's lifelong. He shall be united to his wife. He'll hold fast to his wife. Jesus' comment in chapter 19 makes it clear what God has joined together, let no one separate. This is to be a lifelong commitment. And it's a sexual union. The two will become one flesh. Now, that's not only talking about sex. That one flesh union is a joining together of two people fully, all of life joined. But the physical sexual union is an important part of that. God's good gift of sex is to be expressed and enjoyed within this committed covenant. I find it helpful to remember it like this. It's a bit simplistic, but I think helpful. God is all for sex, and sex is all for marriage. God is not anti-sex. He invented it but he invented it to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. Feminist writer Louise Perry says in her book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, that the sexual revolution has led to the widely held view that sex is nothing more than a leisure activity, invested with meaning only if the participants choose to give it meaning. Proponents of this idea argue that sex has no intrinsic specialness, she goes on to talk about the Me Too movement and how that's revealed the impact of this view on women. She says, there were a lot of women who described sexual encounters that were technically consensual, but nevertheless left them feeling terrible because they were being asked to treat as meaningless something that they felt to be meaningful. She argues that this view of sex that's come out of the sexual revolution in the 1960s isn't actually true, and we all know it. And the Bible would agree with her. Sex is incredibly precious and powerful. We're not to idolize it, but we are to treat it as special. It has divine purpose and power to bind two people together. God has designed it to be used within the committed marriage relationship to strengthen that union. So Tim Keller puts it like this. There needs to be an integrity between body and life. You must not do with your body what you're not willing to do with the rest of your life. So sex within a marriage is a sign of what you've done with your whole life. When you make yourself physically naked, physically vulnerable, physically open, you're acting out the openness and vulnerability that you've committed to in every area of life. You give your spouse your body in token of how you've given them everything. And so there's a sense in which every time you have sex, you're, you're getting married all over again. You're giving yourself all over again. And so sex within marriage can be incredibly deepening and strengthening, renewing and nurturing. It's like relational cement, like relational glue. 
It's designed by God to strengthen that bond between husband and wife. There's one other aspect of marriage we need to understand. The marriage relationship is modeled on and points to the relationship between God and his people. That's the relationship we were all created for, a relationship with God himself. Time and again through the Bible, God describes himself as a husband to his people. Jesus famously refers to himself as the bridegroom. And that means human marriage is really, really important. Every marriage is intended to point to, to to be a copy of the true and ultimate marriage between Christ and his people. At one of the first wedding services that I, I took, I got Moya, I think she was probably about six years old, to attempt to paint a replica of the Mona Lisa. And I revealed this as an illustration of what marriage is. If you like, it's our attempt to copy the masterpiece. In getting married, it's as if we were given a canvas to, to paint on. We, we take on the responsibility of creating as faithful a copy of the true marriage as we can, reflecting Jesus' faithfulness in our relationship with one another, reflecting his selfless service, his care, his delight, his love. And so all of that explains the damage that adultery brings. If I have sex with someone to whom I'm not publicly, permanently committed, I'm damaging something that God has put right at the center of his creation. I'm messing with God's design. I'm sinning against my spouse if I'm married. I'm breaking my marriage vows. I'm sinning against that other person, whether they're married or not. I'm sinning against myself. I'm losing my integrity, dividing my body from the rest of my life. Most importantly, I'm sinning against God. I'm breaking his commands. I'm breaking his heart. I'm taking his gift of sex and I'm using it in completely the opposite way to his design. Rather than self-giving, I'm using it in self-serving ways. And I'm taking his gift of marriage. And rather than reflecting his beautiful, faithful love, it's as if I'm taking a... And then there's divorce. Divorce is a, a painful subject, complicated. We've only got a couple of verses from Jesus here. And we've only got time for a few brief comments. Let me say, please come and talk to me if you have remaining questions. Or talk to one of the other members of the leadership team. But Jesus says, verse 31, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This reference to certificates of divorce comes from Deuteronomy 24. God gave instructions there for certificates to be provided as a way to ensure that a divorced woman was legally recognized and cared for. Those instructions weren't about approving of divorce, but rather a way to try and limit the damaging consequences of it. But it seems in Jesus' day, the religious leaders were suggesting a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all, as long as he formalizes it and gives her a certificate. 
that explains, I think, the question Jesus is asked in chapter 19. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? To which Jesus responds, God's design for marriage is a lifelong commitment. Jesus isn't saying divorce is impossible. Marriage is a covenant relationship. And when the, the terms of that covenant are broken, the relationship can be ended. Jesus only mentions adultery here, but many, including me, would say there are other legitimate grounds for divorce, such as desertion, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, where one party walks out on the other, deserts the marriage, or abuse, where the marriage vows are clearly being broken in very serious ways. The question of remarriage after divorce is contentious. I take the view that if the marriage has been broken, then divorce and remarriage are legitimate options for both parties. But in no case is divorce essential or automatic. Even when vows have been broken, even when there has been adultery or, divorce, or abuse, it's possible for the relationship to be restored to be healed, just as God forgives and restores his relationship with his unfaithful people. Even when a knife has been taken to the canvas, there can be healing and repair. Divorce is always painful, always damaging. Even when there are legitimate grounds, even when both parties consent, it's not God's intention or design, but there is forgiveness and there is redemption available through Christ. I realize how difficult this is to hear. It is super countercultural, isn't it? The, the ideology of the sexual revolution has become so widespread, so widely accepted. Jesus' teaching can sound crazy, but that's kind of the point of the Sermon on the Mount. It sounded crazy to the first hearers, too. Jesus is setting out the values of his kingdom. An alternative society, a city within a city, a community shaped not by the values of the world, but by the character of God himself. And although it might sound crazy, isn't there also something beautiful about Jesus' teaching on sex and marriage? You know, things like the Me Too movement have revealed something of the dark side of the sexual revolution and its ideology. And as Louise Perry persuasively argues, it's not only that that's been bad for women, it's been bad for men too. Jesus' teaching was just as radical in the first century as it is today. In fact, the original sexual revolution was the one led by Jesus and those who followed him and his values. Maybe it's time for another revolution. But there's more. We've only really covered the first verse and two at the end. But Jesus doesn't stop at physical adultery and divorce. According to Jesus, this command goes much deeper and addresses the thoughts of our hearts. Verse 27 again. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So our second point, the danger of lust. Now, at this point, some people might say, well, there you go. It's what I always thought. You Christians, you're so hung up about sex. Uh, I'm going to hell. 
So it's important we understand what Jesus is actually saying here. He is not condemning sexual desire per se. The Bible is not at all negative about sex and sexual desire. We've already seen God is the one who invented it. He created sexual organs. He invented orgasms. Just after God creates Eve, Adam says, you remember this in chapter 2 of Genesis, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. It's a poem or maybe a song. And so here in the second chapter of the Bible, we've got a naked man singing a love song over a naked woman in the presence of God. And that's just the start. You get to Proverbs and husbands are encouraged to, to rejoice in the wife of their youth, to let her breasts satisfy you always. There's kind of no way around that. It's not metaphorical. You know, sometimes there are advantages to taking the Bible literally. And then you have the Song of Songs, a whole book of the Bible given over to celebrating the glory of sex and sexual love. There's no way you can get a negative view of sexual desire out of the Bible. But that doesn't mean that the Bible says all our sexual desires are to be followed. Louise Perry again says, liberal ideology flatters us by telling us our desires are good and that we can find meaning in satisfying them, whatever the cost. She goes on, we should not assume that any given feeling we discover in our hearts or our loins ought to be acted upon. It's not only abusers who could do with putting virtue before desire. All of us are likely to be tempted by our worst instincts every now and again, and we're much more likely to indulge them in a culture that encourages hedonism. So we mustn't go beyond what Jesus is saying. It, it's not wrong for us to recognize that another person is beautiful, nor is it wrong to experience a physical attraction. Jesus doesn't condemn sexual attraction, but he does condemn lust. When in our minds, in our hearts, we begin to entertain, begin to imagine, begin to desire actually following through on that attraction. Jesus says adultery begins in the heart. What we do in the privacy of our hearts matters. There are a number of ways that this plays out. Maybe two big ones, two big expressions of lust. The most obvious, the most pervasive expression of lust is pornography. And we've seen that God designed sex for self-giving, for serving, something to strengthen the bond between husband and wife. But porn and the masturbation that usually accompanies it is the complete opposite of what God designed sex to be. It's not self-giving, it's self-gratification. You know, the whole porn industry that generates huge profits for those who market it, the, the whole industry is designed to promote adultery, to feed lust. And it does so at the expense of millions of people who are exploited and abused. That's the most obvious expression of lust, but... There's another far more subtle expression, and that is wishing your spouse to be different. You know, idolatry in the Bible, I think, has two, two forms. We can be guilty of idolatry when we worship other gods. 
we can also be guilty of idolatry when we seek to make God in our own image. And so, I think in the same way, lust can be wanting a different spouse, wanting, fantasizing about having sex with another person. But I think lust can also be expressed by wanting your spouse to be different, more toned, more sexually adventurous, more romantic, more cherishing, believing that if your spouse was different, then you'd be fulfilled, then you'd be satisfied. Jesus is holding up that the mirror of God's law. How are you looking? At this point, we might think, okay, sure, lust isn't great, fantasizing about those things isn't particularly helpful, but is it really that serious? Compared to most people around me in this area, I'm a saint. But Jesus doesn't let us off the hook, does he? Verse 29, if you're wrong, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. As we saw last week, Jesus is clear in teaching about hell and judgment. He believes there will be a day of judgment. He teaches more about judgment than almost anything else. And so we might not feel a deep conviction of guilt over the lust in our hearts. We might want to soften the seriousness of sin and water down the consequences it deserves. In our cultural climate, it's certainly easy to place how we feel about something above what Jesus says about it. But if we call ourselves Christians, if we call Jesus Lord, then we need to let him direct what we believe and how we think. And Jesus is crystal clear. The adulterous thoughts of our hearts are deserving of hell. How then are we to respond? Final points, forgiveness, fulfillment, and fight. Firstly, come to Jesus for forgiveness. That's the application. Come to Jesus. Don't stay on your own trying to pretend you're better than you are, trying to perform, trying to achieve a righteousness of your own, trying to deal with sin through your own efforts. Come to Jesus, broken and bankrupt, mourning and confessing your sin, seeking his grace to forgive. Hear Jesus' words again, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Through the cross, you are washed clean, whiter than snow. Secondly, come to Jesus for fulfillment. Remember the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4? And Jesus says to her, I can give you living water. I can, I can satisfy your deepest longing so you never thirst. And she says, sir, give me this water. And he says, go and get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. And you think, what is going on? Why is Jesus talking about her messed up sex life? And it seems clear. Jesus is saying, you've been looking for satisfaction 
in men, in sex and romance and relationships. But what you're looking for can only be found in me. I'm the one who gives living water. As we sang, Jesus said, if I thirst, I should come to him. Friends, Jesus is the ultimate spouse, the one who will never let you down. He's the true lover of our souls, utterly faithful, utterly fulfilling. See, what is it that really lies behind our struggles with lust? What are we really looking for? Affirmation? Comfort? Pleasure? We're wanting to be wanted, to be loved. We need to fight lust. We need to take practical steps against temptation. We'll come on to that. But we'll never gain victory over lust unless we deal with the heart desires that lie behind it. So come to Jesus for fulfillment. The one who loved you from eternity. The one who loved you to the cross. He loved you yesterday. He loves you still. He always has. He always will. Pray that the Spirit will make the love of Jesus so real and satisfying to you that you don't need lust. Thirdly, come to Jesus for strength to fight. Gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. I, I take it here Jesus is not actually advocating self-mutilation. He's using extreme language and overstatement to make a point that we are to take radical costly action to get sin out of our lives. He's not saying we can save ourselves from hell through our own efforts, but as members of his kingdom, those who have been rescued already from the judgment we deserve, we're to take radical action against ongoing sin in our lives. Being forgiven doesn't mean we adopt a carefree attitude to sin. We're to fight it. Not out of fear of judgment, but out of love for the one who's taken that judgment in our place. What radical, costly action do you need to take today, this week? Do you need to put safeguards around your use of the internet, use of your phone? Do you need to plan for how you're going to guard yourself when you travel for work? Are there places you need to stop going to, people you need to stop spending time with? We're to fight sin, radical, costly action, but we're to do that not on our own. Come to Jesus. Fight with him alongside. Fight in his strength, in the power of his spirit. Rest in his grace, seeking your fulfillment and satisfaction in him. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you, Jesus is lifting up the, the mirror of God's law, showing us in full clarity the reality of our hearts and needs for his grace. We're, we're to respond by coming to him, coming to him for forgiveness, for fulfillment, for the strength to fight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this teaching of Jesus. 
It's searching, it's convicting, it's also beautiful. And we long to be a community that embodies these values more and more. Please, would you work in us, bring right conviction, bring full repentance. Show us the steps we need to take as followers of Jesus to eradicate sin as best we can from our lives. Help us to come to him for forgiveness, for fulfillment, for the strength to fight. Please continue to minister to us this morning by your Spirit. We thank you for your grace and pray that you would deepen our, our wonder and appreciation for your amazing grace towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.